My name is Jordan, and I'll be the intro man, the editor, and the man responsible for bringing the Bitcoin Ben Show to the audios. It's been a while. I've been away. I took my first vacation in a very long time last week as we went to uh, one of our friend's weddings in Kelowna, BC. That was the furthest I've ever been west, believe it or not. I've been very far east. I've been overseas. I've been a ton of places around the world, but I've never been that far west in the country that I live in here in Canada. And uh, I didn't really know what to expect. The Rocky Mountains I've been to before skiing and stuff, but I've never been there in the summer. And uh, it far exceeded all expectations. It was an amazing week. But it's good to be back home. I'm sure you can relate to that feeling. Uh, It was an 18-hour drive, so we're still feeling a few effects from it. Uh, But I'm going to be uploading a ton of podcasts that I've missed for the last week, week and a half here. And so this is going to be the intro for all of them. So if this is the first one that you're listening to, you can go ahead and skip forward because they're all going to be the exact same. But we got some catching up to do. It's raining here today, finally. It's been so dry here lately. We had a really good spring, uh, but it's just been bone dry here for the last month or so. So it's finally raining today. Figured it was a good time to catch up on some uh, podcasts and some uploads and some other things for uh, for Ben here. So hoping that the rain will help with all the forest fires we've been having here that our wonderful prime minister has been sponsoring in the name of climate change. Probably no coincidence to the dozens of people who have been charged with arson. Uh, so, But we'll just chalk it up to uh, climate change because that's... If you're listening to this, I'm sure you believe in the climate change. We're paying two taxes now here in Canada for it, carbon tax. We want to get rid of carbon. Even though it was six degrees here in July this week. So if you're a listener of Cliff High and and you're a believer in logic, uh, I think we're going to have some cold years ahead here. So it's pretty sad that we're actually paying to make our country colder by eliminating the carbon. But anyways, that's enough of a rant for today. I had a lot to catch up on, <laughs> so I'll squeeze that in there. Uh, but let's get to some metrics here. Currently, we are sitting at block height 799290 which leaves us with only 710 blocks until the 800,000 block. Pretty exciting, I think. I mean, since Bitcoin has been around, that has only happened seven times so far, 100,000 blocks. So it'll be, I'm sure there are some crazy Bitcoiners out there who will be throwing a party for that 10-minute block when it hits 800,000. What else do we got here? We have the cheapest fees that I've seen in a very long time. If you're sending any Bitcoin right now on layer one, it's only costing you eight sats per V-byte. Pretty good. Considering about a month ago, it was close to 50 sats per V-byte, I believe. Let me check here. Holy. Got some thunder here. I don't know if you could hear that or not, but that was a little thunder, a little morning thunderstorm. Anyways, uh, so 10 weeks ago, 55 sats per V-byte, and we're down to six now. Newest block was six sats 
per V-byte. So if you are one of those people who are trying to get ahead of things here, if you want to consolidate your UTXOs for the future, highly recommend doing it right now while fees are low. Now is the time to be doing this in a low-fee environment. You can consolidate your UTXOs to make any future transactions a lot cheaper going out of your wallet. So something to consider. Another little rant there about UTXOs. I'm getting everything off my chest today. So we got block height 799290. We got six sats per V-byte. And if you're buying any Bitcoin today, the price of Bitcoin hasn't changed much. Fees are down. The blocks keep chugging along, but the price of Bitcoin hasn't changed for quite a while now. I think we hit a uh, yearly high last week when the XRP scam uh, got a bit of life there. Everything pumped, uh, but it's back down now. For one US dollar, you can get 3,361 Satoshis. Still a great deal, looking like a better deal more and more every day as BlackRock, Fidelity, all these huge banks are going to be trying to get your Bitcoin from you. So Ben talked about it on a show yesterday, I think it was, and it's something that I've been thinking quite a bit about actually is uh, the Bitcoin price. We know that BlackRock pretty much owns the world and they have access to unlimited capital, unlimited cash almost. And so I foresee in the near future, I think it's going to be this bull run where the, the price go the price goes up so fast and so high that people just don't even think twice and just sell their Bitcoin. And you know who's going to be there waiting for it? BlackRock. And that is one of the main concerns I have with Bitcoin right now. Although at the same time, I feel like the people who are in Bitcoin right now are in it for the long run. But I, that's why I think that they're going to have to push the price up high enough to try and push those people into selling it. Because we know that there's only X amount of Bitcoin, 21 million, about 19 and a half are in circulation right now, have been mined. So Bitcoin's something that they can't print, that they can't hypothecate anymore. If they have a spot ETF, they're gonna have to hold the exact amount of Bitcoin that their clients have as an ETF. And they're not gonna care about how high the price goes they're only going to care about how many Bitcoin they can get for their clients and for their reserves. So that's a little scary. I hope that uh, I do think that there's enough people in Bitcoin who are here for the long run. The majority of people at this point in time are here for the long run. They understand Bitcoin, where it's going, how it's generational wealth, but the cost of living, the cost of debt, the cost of just breathing right now is so high that it might force people into selling. And unfortunately, that Bitcoin is going to end up in the hands of the worst people in the world. But we'll see. All we can do is talk about it. All we can do is bring awareness to it. And all we can do is get our Bitcoin into cold storage and hold on for dear life. So I hope you enjoy all of these episodes that are going to be attached to this intro. There's probably going to be at least 10 of them, I think. Ben's on the road, but he's still been doing shows every morning. Good to see. Some long ones, too. If you're not of, uh, if you're not a member of his Patreon yet, he has been putting out a ton of content on his Patreon. For 5 bucks a month, it's a no-brainer. 
And that's where he really gets into the weeds. That's where he gets into the stuff that he can't talk about on YouTube. He has his own private server, so that's where the Patreon stuff goes. It's worth every penny, every sat for the Patreon membership. So there's going to be a link below here in the description if you want to join his Patreon. And uh, the more people that join, the more content he'll have and the more we can keep pushing forward here. So good way to support. Also, if you're listening to this on Fountain, you can send a boostagram. I will be reading all boostagrams on the intros here. And so that's another way to support Ben. You can also tune into Vita.live for his daily show and send some sats on there. Ton of different ways. Whatever you're into, there's a way to do it. So I apologize once again for missing the last week or so, but it was a much needed vacay. So enjoy the week, enjoy the episodes here, and we'll talk to you very soon. Here is the man himself, Bitcoin Ben. And we are live. Good morning, everybody. It's your favorite truck driver in the whole wide world, ex-truck driver. It's Bitcoin Ben trying to get his screens all lined up here prior to, uh, you know, getting going here. Now, this, this episode is going to be very, very unique. Everyone watching over on Rumble, give me a thumbs up and a like and a share and a double extra share and a share on the side. Those of you watching on YouTube, do the same. What's up with my hat? My hat's like feet. There we go. Okay. Now, hang on one second. I want to find this tweet real quick. It, it, well, here, hell with it. It basically says what I said last week on one of my shows, that the insiders of cryptocurrencies, and we're talking those in the nose knows, those people are calling for a hundred to two hundred and fifty thousand dollars per Bitcoin as the ETFs are approved. All right, this is this is not you know Bitcoin Ben just saying it. This is. This is, hang on a second. This is like the people that, um, no, hang on a second. Let's, let's get this guy on here real quick. All right. I'm going to bring you guys video evidence that the ETFs will get approved and that the the uh, 
The World Economic Forum is in absolute panic mode. And I mean, wait till we watch this video of the interviews of the uh, Bank of England, the ECB, Jerome Powell, and the Bank of Japan. All four of those people got interviewed and they got crushed by the somehow an honest moderator was brought in and she absolutely destroyed these people. I mean, she destroyed them. I was sitting there watching this thing and I'm going, how the hell is this woman not dead? How has she not been Clinton yet? Now, those of you on YouTube, you have a special today because I won't be moving off of YouTube today because of a special guest in an hour. Those of you who may know, here we go. All right, I'm going to share a screen. Hang on one second. Share a screen. Share a screen. All right, the entire screen. Share system audio. Share. There we go. Okay. Let me put me down here. All right, I'm going to turn this down a little bit. Let me make sure that my sound's right. Yep, there we go. Now, hang on a second. Here we go. Ready, set, go. Uh, SEC chairman. Um so we start, we were talking off camera about, um, I, I am accused of negligence at home a lot, and I don't try it. I'm just not always smart enough to know what I should be doing, right? Is that, I, I mean, there's a rule now being proposed for the SEC. It's not, doesn't have to be gross negligence. It's almost anything could, could be construed as negligence in terms of lawsuits. Yeah, look, I think, I think a mandatory negligence standard in the context of investing, which is inherently uncertain. It's about the future. We can't predict the future. And if you're going for high returns, isn't there, there's going to be losses from time to time that might not be from negligence. And, and, a, and a legal standard like strict liability, negligence, gross negligence, recklessness, those standards are judged with hindsight. And so you have a negligence standard um, with something that's forward-looking. It doesn't, look, it doesn't make a lot of sense. It also from what I would say is not just from a substantive point of view, but from a legal point of view, imposing contract terms on private parties, that's a pretty big step. You know, parties who can freely negotiate. What, what I think is a, a better way to approach um, the investor and the manager 
is ensuring alignment of interest. What are we doing to ensure that there's alignment of interest, that people have the same sort of skin in the game? That's, that's a much better way to deal with these issues. Yeah, don't hold your breath. That's, that's not gonna happen anytime soon. And, and either party, depending on who's in office, could certainly accuse the other party when they're in office of gross negligence. Look, look. You don't think Republicans are talking about what's happening now is gross negligence in, in the economy? I think, you're, I think that's exactly the point, Joe, which is that in how you manage an investment, how you manage the economy, um, when there are so many factors at play, with hindsight, you're always going to be viewed as not having done the best job you could. If you watch with interest as, as uh, blue chip firms have decided that, that they want to get involved with Bitcoin or, or crypto? Well, it, it's, a, give me a minute. It's a fascinating etymology. Let's go back to like 2015, 16. This is an offshore retail, nothing close to what I would say the core of our financial markets. At that time, if you look at trading of Bitcoin, the emergence of Bitcoin, it looked like, it looked like stocks, but it was nothing like it. Now we've seen a development all the way to the point where companies whose reputation in the market matters are saying, you know what, we think that trading, we think that the custody, we think that those protections around this market are sufficient, that we're willing to put our name on it and offer that product. That's actually an incredible development, not one that I expected. Um, I was very skeptical of trading in, in the Bitcoin market when I was um, SEC chair. I thought, you know, there were studies that 90% of it was wash trading, ripe for manipulation and the like, large people dumping. You know, the fact that we have these institutions that know markets better than, than anybody and are saying, you know, we're going to put our reputation behind it, I, I find that pretty remarkable. Can they say no to a spot ETF? Well, for how much longer? Well, it goes to that issue. I think that when the SEC approved the futures-based ETF, they said, let's look at the futures market. We see the surveillance. We see, we see the protections in that market for the end investor that are sufficient. We don't see them in the spot market, so we're going to make that distinction. I think what the institutions are arguing is that those, those distinctions have gone away, and now the spot product is actually less drag, more efficient for the investor. So if there's not that delta in regulation, not that delta in what I could say efficacy, the spot should be approved. That's the, that's the argument when? that's going on right now. Look, the, 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 the regulatory process, whether it doesn't matter. It's been a while already. It, it's been a while already. What, what I would say is this, if they're right, that you can demonstrate that the spot market has similar efficacy to the futures market, it's, it would be hard to resist approving a Bitcoin ETF. Really? Now, for those of you who don't know, that guy is who screwed us in 2018, 2007. In fact, DC was it was it november or december, december 5th no december 18th 2018 jay clayton is who approved sec sec futures on bitcoin he screwed us now, 
Jay Clayton is now saying this is this should be approved. Right. Jay Clayton, for those of you who don't know, Jay Clayton doesn't say a plucking word without Black Rock's approval. I, Black Rock owns Jay Clayton. That's just the way it is. Look at his past, right? I get a great point. I think Jay Clayton owns some pit coin. I'm I'm surprised they did not ask him if he owned any Bitcoin. I'm very surprised. I would have I would have asked him, hey Jay, you bought any Bitcoin lately? Because He's, Jay Clayton's not going to get on television and go, I think that these educated and these influential people, BlackRock, I think they'll get approved. I think so. I think so. He's not going to say a damn word about BlackRock, unless he's ran it by BlackRock. Once again, BlackRock owns these guys. Lock, stock, and barrel. All right, so we got Jay Clayton. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 a bit. Oh, hey, by the way, I'm in St. Louis. Oh, I got me some quick trip. It's been so long. Pow, chicka, pow, pow, chicka, pow, pow. Oh, say it with me, folks. Mother's milk. Oh, quick trip, quick trip. Where's my sponsorship, you cheap bastards? Okay, now let's get rid of Jay Clayton. Now, we're going to go over here and we are going to listen. All right, folks. Now, this, this is going to take a while, right? But this is so important. This is why I want you guys to watch this and watch it good. This gal, oh my God. Of course, she's a redhead. This gal puts these four through the ringer. I mean, literally through the ringer on this. Listen closely, folks.
listen to what this gal and listen to what the four central bankers, the heads of the central banks, listen to how she eats them up and how they wiggle and how they try and get out of things. Because she asks what are called a backup question, where she'll ask a question and then she'll back it up, right? I don't know how this woman even was allowed to be the moderator of this. There's no way that this would have happened a year ago. No way in hell. Watch, folks. Bank, the Federal Reserve, and the Bank of England have all raised rates. Even the Bank of Japan is considering unraveling its decade. Hello, and welcome back to the final panel of our conference. Inflation is lingering. The European Central Bank, the Federal Reserve, and the Bank of England have all raised rates. Even the Bank of Japan is considering unraveling its decades-long ultra-loose monetary policy. The question now is how long will policies have to stay? All right, hang on. I just wanted to jump in. You have to, you have to, as soon as I started watching this, all right, as soon as I started watching this, as soon, did you see how she said, even the Bank of Japan has started to loosen up or tighten up on their decades of loose monetary. As soon as I heard her say that, I said, oh, hell no. Oh, hell no. She, she just went, she, from the get-go, she went to the jugular of the Bank of Japan. You don't talk about 25, 30 years of the Bank of Japan's manipulation, especially, right, especially in front of these people. Give me a like and subscribe on whatever channel you're watching. Let the show continue in retreat in in restrictive territory to bring inflation back to institutions two percent goals and is it possible to do so without creating a recession ladies and gentlemen the members of our next panel will bear a great deal of responsibility 
for bringing inflation back down to two, and not only that, but keeping it there. Sarah Eisen, the closing bell anchor at CNBC, will be moderating this session. Sarah, over to you. Thank you so much, Claire. And, and let me just say, as a, a business and financial journalist who started out in foreign... Here we go, folks. She just handed off the club to another woman about to club the shit out of these people. Exchange. This is pretty much as good as it gets. So thank you for having me um, talking to the big four today. And what I love, I'm excited for this conversation because it's always fun when, when everybody's in different places and going at different speeds and maybe disagreeing if you dare to do so today. So thank you all. President Lagarde, I'll start with you as the host of this meeting. On, on The View from Europe, I'm curious where all of you are in terms of this policy path. We've certainly seen a fight against inflation. You've been very clear that there's more work to do. How much more? <laughs> thank you so much, Tara. It's very nice having you in, uh, in this closing moment. <laughs> And uh, I'll take this opportunity to thank all the contributors, those who have uh, prepared papers, those who have worked with the presenters and she all the members. It's been really, trouble. really a rich conference, and I want to, to thank you. So as far as the European Central Bank is concerned and the euro system at large, we have covered uh, a lot of ground. We have increased uh, our interest rates by no less than 400 basis points in a very short order, less than a year. And, uh, and we still have ground to cover. And uh, I think that, as I said earlier on, we are data dependent. Uh, we will decide on a meeting by meeting basis, but we know uh, that we have ground to cover. And if our baseline uh, stands, then we also know that uh, we will very likely hike again in, uh, in July. What about September? That I will not tell you, and for a very simple reason that I just mentioned, we are data dependent. We'll decide meeting by meeting, and you know we'll tell you for the September meeting we will have received a lot more data, information, survey results, and it's going to be another projection uh, meeting prepared by the uh, the staff of the ECB. So we will have a lot a lot in our hands to uh, to make our decision. Then, Governor Bailey, you surprised the market recently, raising interest rates by 50. You did a double. Why did you feel the need to do that? Well, it really picks up on the theme that Christine has just uh, just developed. First of all, I mean, the UK economy has turned out uh, to be much more resilient, and that's a good thing. I mean, there's many good aspects to that. But what goes with that resilience is signs of uh, a very tight labour market, which is which is showing through in, in pay, uh, pay awards, uh, but also showing through, I mean, we've got a, we have an unemployment rate of 3.8%, which is historically right at the low end. So that resilience is coming through that way. But when we looked at the, again, to Christine's point, when we looked at the data, because we too are being driven by evidence at the moment, the cumulative data, both particularly on the labor market and on the, inf the inflation release we had, which to us showed clear signs of persistence, uh, caused us to conclude that we had to make really quite a strong move at that point. It, it, you know, it was justified. My own, my own view on that was, if we were really of the view that we were going to do 25, and then we were really sort of baked in for another 25 based on the evidence we'd seen. It was better to do the 50. Uh, and then we will 
as Christine said, we will be evidence-driven, so we will wait for the next set of evidence for our next meeting, which, to Christine's point again, will also be one where we will have a full forecast. Have you received a lot of flack for the move? Well, I think at the moment uh, I can understand why uh, there are critics of, uh, of us and central banks. Uh, we have a job to do. It's, I'm very clear that our job, all of us are very clear, I think our job is to return inflation to target and we will do what is necessary. I understand the concerns that go with that, but I'm afraid I always have to say that it is a worse outcome if we don't get inflation back to target. Something I know you, you, you've all been saying. Chair Powell, you've said it many times and, and yet... You paused, but you're not calling it a pause, and you're not calling it a skip. So what are we calling it? Well, first of all, Sarah, thank you, and um, Christine, thanks for hosting us here in, uh, in Sintra. So um, what we're calling it is maintaining the uh, level of the federal funds rate at its current level uh, for, the, <laughs> for this meeting. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and we did that, if you, if you think about it, we've, we've raised uh, the federal funds rate by 500 basis points since a little more than a year ago. And we think, uh, so we've come a long way. We also think that there's more uh, tightening power coming through. Really, policy hasn't been restrictive for very long. We started at, at you know, negative real interest rates and we've now moved up to where we actually are in restrictive territory, but we haven't been there very long. So we believe there's more restriction coming. And what's really driving it uh, you know, to, uh, Andrew's point and Christine's as well, is very strong labor market. We've got a labor market that, you know, where jobs are being created, there's strong wage gains, and that's driving spending, driving real incomes and driving spending, which is driving more demand and continuing to drive labor market. So the, the, the labor market is really, is really pulling the economy. And um, my colleagues and I, as you, as you will know, uh, wrote down in our SEP two more additional rate hikes. The median uh, uh, was quite a strong majority, actually wanted two or more rate hikes. <clears throat> and the reason for that was, if you look at the, the data over the last quarter, what you see is stronger than expected growth, uh, a tighter than expected labor market, and higher than expected inflation. So that tells us that although policy is restrictive, it's not, it may not be restrictive enough, and it, and it has not been restrictive for long enough. So I don't get why you didn't raise rates at the last meeting, especially I think it was a surprise that it was a unanimous decision to hold rates steady when you said a majority think that they still need to go farther on raising rates? It, it's really just um, as you get closer and closer to the goal. What, what we're aiming for is a, a stance of policy that's sufficiently restrictive to bring inflation down to 2% over time. As you get closer to that, you, you get closer to the place where the risks become more in balance. So, you know, we did four 75 basis point hikes in a row starting in June of last year. In December, we moved down to 50. Then we did three consecutive 25 basis point hikes. So this is really just a continuation. We're, we're going to move the, move the decisions a little bit, make them a little bit with a little bit more time in between them in an effort to get more information from the data to see how much restraint is really coming from these, you know, th through the pipeline from rate hikes that we only made now, in many cases, six, eight, nine months ago. So that's why we did it. So maybe in every other meeting hike. We've not decided that. So okay. no, we, we only th the only thing we decided was not to raise rates at the, June meeting. We have not made a decision to go to that. It may work out that way. It may not work out that way, but I wouldn't take, you know, moving a consecutive meetings off the table at all. I'm trying. Um, Governor Weta, I mean, first of all, it's great to talk to you. We haven't heard much from you outside of your policy meetings in Japan. I think the world wants to know why you're the global outlier here. You have decided to maintain 
your easier monetary policy in the face of rising inflation? Why? So uh, a simple answer would be, although the headlining rate of inflation is above 3%, which is well above the 2% inflation target, uh, we think underlying inf inflation is still a bit lower than 2%. That's, be, that's why we are keeping policy unchanged at the moment. Even though we've seen measures, including including core, right, higher than the yeah, 2% level. Yeah, the core is, is also about 2%. But let's say, uh, let's look at uh, the rate of increasing wages, which is uh, an important determinant of underlying inflation. It has risen, but is now running at around 2%. Now, if you want a 2% inflation rate, wage inflation that's consistent with that would be slightly or well above 2% if you assume productivity growth rate is positive. So there's still some distance to go, we think. And as a result of, of your policy being different than all these policies of your, of your colleagues, the yen has gotten very weak and continues to weaken by the minute. Is it too weak? Well, the yen is in for being influenced by many factors other than our monetary policy, including the policies of these three banks. So uh, <laughs> we'll see. Uh, we, we monitor the situation very carefully. Monitoring the situation? Yes. For intervention purposes? No, no. I, <laughs> it's the ju jurisdiction of the Ministry of Finance. Decision is on intervention. President Lagarde. President Lagarde, how, how, how much would you like to see inflation moderate from these levels? Because we've already seen a nice moderation for you to feel comfortable taking a pause or potentially going the other way. Well, this is not what we're considering at the moment, okay? But if I look back at uh, what we've covered, inflation was, I think the highest reading we had was 10.3. Uh, we are now at 6.1 headline. Uh, core has moved a bit down, but we are really looking at both headlines, which is the measurement that uh, we have agreed in our strategy and that is visible for people, for the consumers of Europe, but we're also looking at underlying inflation. And on that front, you know, we, we are not seeing enough tangible evidence of the fact that underlying inflation, particularly the domestic prices, are stabilizing and moving down. So. We're looking at as many measurements as we can. Yes, Daddy-O brings up a great point. And remember, she's a Main Street media reporter. I want to know how she wasn't kneecapped or Clintoned while she did this. because we want to be in sufficiently restrictive territory for long enough so that we are confident that we reach our 2% medium-term target. Why is it so sticky, Governor Bailey? And why is your inflation rate higher than that of Europe's? Well, let me distinguish uh, headline and core for a moment. So with headline inflation, I do expect it to come down markedly this year, as we've been expecting for some time. Uh, and a lot of that is to do with the fact that the unwind of energy measures in the UK 
is on a sort of somewhat longer track, so that we will see some quite quite sort of discrete sort of jumps down in, uh, in headline inflation in the UK throughout the rest of this year. And indeed, actually, you know, energy prices are now somewhat weaker anyway than we thought they, thought they would be even quite recently. So it's core that's the issue, just as, as Christine has said. Core is, is, is much stickier. Uh, I think I come back to the labour market again. We have a very, very robust labour market and strong labour market in, in the UK. One of the striking things about the UK is that the size of the labour force is smaller than it was at the outbreak of COVID. So we have had a, a shrinkage of the labour force. We're seeing some reversal of that now, but we're still not back to where we were pre-COVID. So that is that is causing uh, you know, the position in the labour market to be very tight. I, and I see this when I go around the country talking to firms, because I can, you know, what, what they say to me very frequently is, that their plan is to retain labor as much as they can, even in the event of a downturn, because they've been concerned and it's been difficult to recruit labor. So that's, that's certainly taking place. So I would say there's a backdrop of a very tight labor market uh, going on. Is it Brexit related also? I don't think Brexit is a, is, is a part of that labor market story. I think a lot more of it is actually to do with, uh, frankly, a, a, you know, the, the response to COVID. I mean, we've seen people UK is a little unusual in this respect. We've seen, we saw people come out of the labor force during the COVID period. Other countries have tended to see that, that position reverse more quickly and more strongly than we've seen in the UK. Governor Weta, when it comes to the inflation path for you, I mean, I know you'd like to see it continue to rise from here, right? What, what would it take for you to really strongly consider abandoning the yield curve control and negative rates? So we, we have a forecast or a, a projection of inflation. Okay, I just gotta bring this up. She just said, right, the three words you're not supposed to say to the Bank of Japan, year Yield curve control, right? This guy does not get this question ever. The Bank of Japan is known for yield. curve control, but, or manipulation of the bonds, right? But no one ever calls them out on it. Nobody. The fact that she even used the terms yield uh, curve control blew my mind. ...path that looks like it's going to go down for a while toward the end of this year on declines in import prices and it's spilled over to domestic prices. And from there on, we are forecasting some increase in, in the rate of inflation into 24. 
but we are less confident about the second part. If we get re if we become reasonably sure about the second part is going to happen, that could be a good reason for a policy change. If you see a steady increase. Uh, if we are reasonably sure that the second part is going, second part of the forecast is going to. But material. didn't you learn from, from these three that inflation turned out to be not transitory? Excuse me? I mean, did, wasn't one of the lessons from the last year that inflation wasn't transitory and that word right so the second part is the sticky part but it's still as I said we think less than two percent we hope to make sure that it's going to go up to two percent chair Powell we, we've seen some progress in the US certainly if you look at the headline CPI from nine percent down to four percent I know you're focused on core but what would make you feel feel better about it that you could remain on hold? So the, the progress on uh, headline inflation coming down is certainly welcome and, and ought to help keep inflation expectations anchored. Uh, but I, th I think it actually helps to break, to think about core inflation broken into three pieces, the first of which is goods inflation. And we've seen goods inflation coming down uh, for six months now. And that's because supply chains are, are improving the shortages are, are more or less gone, and also because uh, consumption is moving back to services and away from goods. So that part of the story makes sense. Uh, housing services is the next piece, and between that and goods, you have a little bit less than half of the total index. And you see now the new rents that are coming in uh, are, are at, at lower increases or no increase, and so that, there's significant uh, disinflation in the pipeline there, but it's gonna take 12 months or 18 months to get there. The place where we haven't really seen much progress is in non-housing services, which is a little more than half of our core PCE inflation index. And that's, you know, uh, hot hotel services, travel services, uh, uh, food service, uh, you know, financial services, healthcare, those things. It's, it's a very labor, generally very labor intensive. Some of it's quite cyclically sensitive, but some of it's not. The point is we really, that, that's, that's where we're not seeing a lot of progress yet. And, and the reason is that, um, or one explanation for it is that uh, labor costs are really the biggest factor by far in that in most parts of that sector and we're so what we need to see we've, we've seen a lot of signs of softening in the labor market but it's just kind of beginning we need to see um, a better alignment of supply and demand in the labor market and see uh, more softening in labor market conditions so that inflationary pressures in that sector can can also begin to subside are you surprised that hasn't happened yet after 500 basis points of tightening already in a little over a year Yes, I, well, I think widely it's been surprising that inflation has been this persistent, but I, I think the bottom line is that policy hasn't been restrictive enough for long enough uh, to, to start to see those effects. And, and you know, the, the, the service sector is not especially uh, interest rate sensitive, by the way, the, as opposed to, for example, the goods sector. So we wouldn't expect it to be the first to be affected, but we, don't, we would ultimately expect as demand softens and as the labor market conditions go more into balance between supply and demand, we would, we would expect to see inflationary pressures subside in that sector as well. Do you guys coordinate? Do you talk amongst yourselves? <laughs> yeah, of course we do. I mean, do you, but, do you but, call before you policy know, meetings? Can, can, can I, yeah, just, I, I just want to follow up on what Jay said because I, I think he's completely right. And I think that the, 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 this is what I call the catch-22 issue, where we have a cat, a, an expected catch-down 
where manufacturing eventually will align, or services will align on manufacturing, and that could be the logical consequence of the, the lag time that it takes for services to align with manufacturing and to, you know, see prices go down in that sector. The catch-up is that of, of labor, because it is, as, as Jay said, labor-intensive. It's generally relatively low productivity and low-skilled um, jobs that in, in, the, in those sectors, and also those jobs that are going to seek the, the catching up with pre-COVID times. And how that uh, catch down, catch up will be resolved is going to be critically important for where inflation is heading. Because if we see inflation going down in, the, in that service sector and movement of wages while increasing, increasing at a moderate pace, then we would be in a relatively good place. But that is totally question mark for the moment. Yeah, it sort of raises the question, Chair Powell, about whether we need to see a much higher unemployment rate in the US, and you're all dealing with a tight labor market, to finally really break inflation. So, you know, that the way we think about that is that there seems to be a path still for labor market conditions to soften and for demand and supply to get back into balance without the kind of large job losses that have, uh, that have happened in many prior cycles. And the reason for that is the level of job openings that still exist in the labor market. So it's still set 1.7 job openings for, for every person who counts as unemployed. That has been coming down. It's come, actually the number of uh, job openings has come down now by almost, almost 2 million. And as you, what you're seeing is you're seeing uh, wage pressures. They're still high, but they're, they're definitely coming down. Um, you're seeing surveys of workers and businesses suggest that the labor market is not as tight as it was a year or two ago. So you're, you're seeing a, a job creation is, is beginning to come down. There are a number of, of um, indicia that would suggest that we're, that we're getting the softening that we need. We're getting it slower than we'd expected, but nonetheless, it's happening. So it's still a possibility there, but you know, they're so, it's so uncertain right now that I, in my view, the, the, the least unlikely case is that we do find our way to better balance with, without a really severe downturn. I think there's, I think there's a, a significant probability that there will be a downturn as well, though. But it's not to, not to me the most likely case. That's the hard landing scenario. Or just this, I wasn't even thinking of hard landing. I was oh. thinking of even a, even a, uh, you know, a recession. Uh, to me, it's not the most likely case, but it's certainly possible. And of course, many forecasters do predict that. Is, is Europe in recession, President Lagarde? I mean, we've seen two negative quarters of. GDP. I don't know how you define it. But. I think the, I think the first quarter of 23 was actually completely flat. Mm. wasn't uh, wasn't negative. So technically, I think you could argue that we did not see a recession, um, but it, it's it's stagnant to say the least. And uh, and the you know the expectations for Q2, particularly in the industrial sector, if I look at PMI numbers, um, are not are not particularly uh, are not giving us great hope that there will be a strong recovery. We see a second half of 23. Um, up from the first half, certainly, but uh, but moderate. We have a 0 0.9 forecast for the whole uh, for the whole year. Do you agree with Chair Powell? Do you think you can get away with this tightening cycle without dragging Europe into recession? Our baseline does not include a recession, but it's you know it's part of the uh, of of the uh, the risk out there. Are you willing to tolerate a recession? If you go back to last autumn, last November, when we did a forecast, we were predicting quite a long but quite shallow recession. 
and the economy, as I said earlier, has turned out to be much more resilient so far. Now, I think you can, you know, you can sort of point to a number of things that underlie that. One of the things I would point to is the fact that we've had a very sharp fall in energy prices in Europe. And that obviously has helped with the, the whole question of the terms of trade shock that we've been having. It's, 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 it's done quite a bit to reverse that terms of trade shock. All right, here's a quick word from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Are you buying are and you selling, buying and selling on the same laptop on the same that you're using, using to browse the internet, browse the read your email, read your email, and visit social media sites? If so, if you're so, exposing your cryptos, exposing to, your theft. cryptos to theft. Whenever you're online, Whenever you're, you're, online you're at risk of having your identity stolen. How would you feel How would you feel if someone stole, stole, all, someone of stole all of your cryptos? What would that do to your finances? Guard your cryptos with a safe and secure laptop from Calix Solutions. Each laptop is set up for you and your cryptos, and then we walk you and then exactly we walk you how it exactly works. how it works. Don't risk the security, risk the security of your cryptos. Your cryptos. Order a crypto laptop from Kalex Solutions, from solutions now to secure your crypto future. Learn more at kalexsolutions.io. And that feeds through international income. So I'm not surprised that we've, you know, we've had this, uh, this reversal in one sense. What was surprising, but actually very helpful, was that of course you know, we did have this big fall in energy prices and a much better winter, frankly, than we thought we would have. So, yeah, we're, we're going through this year now in a, in a more resilient position than I expected. So we're not currently forecasting it, but obviously we have to watch it very carefully. How's the Japanese economy faring? I mean, it's very exciting if you look at the Japanese stock market at a 30-decade high. What's happening fundamentally? It's doing fairly well. I mean, um, apart from the contribution from some inventory investment, uh, domestic economy is expanding at a pace slightly above potential, I think, uh, driven by pent-up demand. We relaxed uh, pandemic-related restrictions uh, in, in May, and this is uh, stimulating consumption and investment. There's also uh, green GX, DX related business fixed investment taking place. So investment is uh, fairly strong at the moment. We think uh, the economy is going to expand at slightly above potential for some, for some time. But there's of course a lot of uncertainties going forward, in, including what may happen in, in Europe and the United States. I, I asked if you guys coordinated or, or talked about monetary policy before. I mean, is that, does that happen? Should it, should it be more coordinated? Because you're all doing different things right now. Well, I, I, I mean, if I start, I mean, obviously what we don't do is say, well, what, what should we do, what should you do? Because we're all setting monetary policy for our areas. And that's the, yeah, that's the law in all of our areas, actually. So we don't do that. But we do talk a lot. And I think it's important. I mean, it's important at all times. But it's particularly important in recent times at the moment because we're facing such big global shocks. I mean, we've got common shocks. Uh, you know, they differ a little bit in terms of their impact and their effect, but there's some huge global events going on that are affecting all of us. So, you know, I think it's, you know, we do talk quite a lot and we see each other quite a bit because it's important we do that. And, you know, we share wisdom on how we're sort of interpreting the things that are going on around us. Yeah, I guess uh, we are in a flexible exchange rate forward. So we do policies independently. But of course, we, we exchange information, which is very, very valuable. Do you think that 
Governor Weta, do you think that they are over tightening? No. <laughs> no, you don't. You're, you approve of the, of the policy. You've had a very tight labor market for a long time in Japan, even before COVID. Yes. Uh, Demographic demographics issues. Demographics yeah. is working in a way to, to tighten the labor market for, for quite a long while. And it's going to continue this way uh, for a while. I mean, the economic conversation, it gets into an interesting question, Chair Powell, where now we're wondering, you know, it, easier to fight inflation last year when the economy was doing better. But now that we're seeing signs of softness and weakness in manufacturing, and you mentioned the labor market starting to cool off, about overdoing it and the risk of overdoing it. Do you wonder about that, or you're still just focused on inflation? Let me, let me say the U.S. economy has actually been quite resilient. And, the, the, you know, the data that we're still seeing, including since the last meeting, still still is consistent with, um, you know, with an economy that's resilient and growing, at, albeit at a modest pace. As I mentioned earlier, though, yes, you know, there was no question we, the first question was how fast should we go? And we went pretty fast. And we got to a level that is, that we believe is restrictive. We're in restrictive territory. If you, if you take the federal funds rate and you subtract you know, some forward-looking measure of expected inflation, you'll get you'll get a significantly positive real rate, meaning we're probably in restrictive territory. So, and, that, and I think I think we have steadily slowed the pace of our moves, and it's appropriate to do so for one reason because, you know, we we the more information we get, the better decisions we'll make. The, the risks do the risks of doing too much versus doing too little become more in balance. I I, we, I wouldn't say they're in balance yet. But they're becoming closer to balance. We, I still believe there, and, and the committee clearly believes that there's more work to do. That there are more rate hikes that are likely to be appropriate, though. So you think the risk is still of doing too little and not getting control of inflation? Yes, and of course the. Um, but inflation expectations are—I don't have to tell you—very well anchored. No, but the, the thing with the risks is that um, there, there may be social costs associated with restoring price stability. The social costs of failing to restore price stability will be higher. In, in almost all likely cases, we've seen what that looks like, and we, you know, it's it, it's uh, it's just something that we have to do. It's it's the the you know one of the principal things that society counts on us to accomplish, and and I think we all feel committed to accomplishing it. It is it is of course a good thing that inflation expectations have remained anchored all this time, but our understanding of inflation expectations is is not a precise one, and the longer inflation remains high. Uh, you know, the more more risk there is that inflation will become entrenched in the economy. So we have to see. This is what I was saying: is every every time that they try and give some horseshit answer, she's actually she's going right back at him. This doesn't happen to these people. These, this is not how this should be going in their heads. Now, this is this is a real interview. They 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 are not used to this. But you know, the the, the passage of time is not our friend here. What about a higher inflation target? I know none of you want to talk about that, but on, on Wall Street, um, there's this idea that 
a lot of things are changing in our economy structurally, the onshoring of supply chains and chip plants and all of that is gonna be expensive and could permanently create higher inflation rates. Couldn't it, President Lagarde? <laughs> well, I, you know, at this point in time and given the, the, the fight that we lead against inflation, the yacht sticks that there is, the strategy that we've agreed, the expectations that we have and the inflation targeting as it has been set, there is no way that any of us, I think, would consider changing the gatepost halfway or more than halfway through, through that, uh, that journey. I think it's wonderful to have a forum like Sintra, uh, which brings together academics and, and uh, other than policymakers to actually consider those, those ideas and to explore them and to weigh the cost and benefit and all the rest of it. But at this point in time, I think we have to be as persistent as inflation is persistent. And we have to be uh, and decided and determined in reaching the target that we have set and not, not debate the target uh, as, as we are running that race. But it does raise the question, Governor Bailey, about how far inflation will come down to. It does, but let me reinforce what um, Christine said. What is the inflation target? It is the definition and practice of price stability. You know, in, our, in our legislation, it is, the, it is what price stability is taken to be. That is the 2% target. And I don't think anything has changed in terms of what we mean by price stability. And I think that's a very important point to, to start with. It's the anchor that we have to always maintain. Now, in terms of bringing it down, yes, I mean, we're facing, you know, have faced and are facing you know, the biggest challenge for a very long time. But we have to meet that challenge. I don't, think, I don't think it is the right thing to do to say, well, this is all a bit difficult. Let's change the target. I really don't think that is the right thing to do. I think that would be a very bad thing to do. And I think, although I, you know, I very much agree, Christine was saying that yeah, there are things we understand about inflation expectations and things we don't understand about inflation expectations. I think taking risks of that nature with inflation expectations, but also you know, fundamentally changing what we mean by price stability when there's no good reason to do that, I think would just be the wrong thing. How do you read, Governor Weda, the inflation expectations? Because they've crept up in Japan as well. Yes. Um, we've been for a long time trapped in a zero inflation, zero inflation expectations equilibrium. So we've been trying very hard to move this to a 2% inflation, 2% expectations equilibrium. Uh, to do so, we had to uh, de-anchor expectations from zero raise inflation expectations, and in the future, we'll have to re-anchor them at 2%. This is a formidable task, and now we, we, we are seeing signs that inflation expectations are rising, but as I said, not to the extent that we are fully in the, in the 2% uh, inflation, inflation expectations equilibrium. It also raises the question, you know, you mentioned the labor market and some of the post-COVID changes about just how COVID has distorted the data and has made travel, for instance, so strong for so long. And I wonder, you know, Chair Powell, how, how you look at the COVID impact on the economy and how it's changed the way you make forecasts and you think about what's happening right now. Well, I think there are, there are changes and we don't know how persistent they will be. Certainly work from home 
And you can see the effect on commercial real estate, particularly office real estate and the surrounding retail that it's suffering in, in uh, many major cities. Um, we don't know how long that will last. It, it feels like some part of that will be persistent and will last. You mentioned the data as well. You know, we've, um, the, I guess, response rates to a lot of the data that's, that we collect and the other uh, organizations collective, the response rates have gone down and, and you're seeing a lot of volatility in some of these data series, more so, I would say, more so than we've seen historically. So uh, the data are a little bit, even a little bit foggier than, uh, than they usually are. Um, but we'll be, you know, in terms of what um, the effects of COVID, it's going to have it's going to have long long term effects on the economy. There may, may be loss of productivity. There's certainly been, for a generation of uh, of kids, some loss of of education and training. Um, I think it's hard to say how how persistent all this will be. Are you are you what is your level of concern of commercial real estate since you mentioned it in the U.S. It, you know, it's something that we, of course, are, are watching carefully. The, the way it, it lays out is um, um, the large banks don't have large concentrations of commercial real estate. So that, that's a good place to start. A, a good part, a surprisingly large part of, of exposure to commercial real estate is in the banks that are under $100 billion. But there the worry is more banks that have a high concentration, and they're relatively few. Um, so... It's something that we're, you know, we're, we're carefully monitoring. We're in, we're, you know, bank supervision has a playbook for this. So supervisors are talking to banks about their concentration of real estate and, you know, what can they do and how do they manage, manage themselves out of this. Um, it's just, it's something that we're well aware of. It's not a surprise. And, uh, you know, we're focusing on it. Um, Is it one of the reasons you were cautious in the last meeting? Commercial real estate? I, I wouldn't say so. No, I, I just, you know, generally speaking, um, you know, it was, the last meeting, it was about, you know, what's in the pipeline, how far we've come, what's in the pipeline. I will also say that, though, that the, the bank stress that would part of the part of the decision, in my thinking anyway, was the bank stress that we experienced earlier this year. This year, <clears throat> there's a fair amount of research showing that when something like that happens, bank credit availability and credit can can move down a little bit with with a bit of a lag. So we're watching carefully to see whether that does appear. Of course. Tightening in financial conditions is what we're doing intentionally. So we have seen bank credit conditions tighten. The question is, and we, that's, that's what we're trying to achieve. The question is, is, is there a, an, another channel of that or a greater amount of that coming from what happened in March? We don't really see any evidence of that, but I think that's in the back of, certainly in the back of my mind, to see whether we do see that. Yeah, it gets into the question about lags. How, how long are lags, Governor Bailey? And do you well, expect to see more? It's a very interesting question in terms of the transmission of our monetary policy decisions. So I can just illustrate it with the UK case. And I'm going to, obviously, it's not the only part of the transmission mechanism, let me be clear. But it's an important part and illustrate it with the UK mortgage market. So we've seen a big structural change in the UK mortgage market since the last tightening cycle of monetary policy, which, of course, accepting passage of time was you know, about 20 years ago, actually. And that change has been a change from a variable rate mortgage market to a fixed rate mortgage market. Now, I must say, we're obviously with Jay here, um, it's not a US-style fixed rate mortgage market. It's, it's, uh, it's a much shorter uh, term. It's, so the average term is often around five years. But we know, and, and we think around about 85% of the stock of UK mortgages are now sort of in that, that part of the market. So we know that the transmission of monetary policy is going to be slower as a result. 
because obviously it depends upon the sort of the timing and the sequence of those, uh, those fixed terms coming to an end often. So we have to judge that. I mean, it's another factor and another sort of element of uncertainty that we have to judge when we're taking our decisions, which is how much of the tightening that we've already done has come through and how much is yet to come through. And we know that you know, referring back along, you know, quite a way into the past isn't going to help us in that respect. Uh, so we have to sort of formulate th those views afresh. And so it is part of our decision-making calculus is, is how much more has to come through, when will it come through, and also how powerfully will it come through. Uh, and all those things are things we have to take into consideration. And as I said, history isn't going to be a great guide for that, given the change in the market. So a year? What's a lag? Well, well, what you see, and of course you can, you, you know, you can compute is the sort of the profile of of, of, of mortgages coming up for uh, for renewal, yeah. renewed terms, and we can see that over the next year or so, there's you know quite a lot of fixed rate mortgages are coming up for renewal. So yeah, we can factor that in. Um, there is another element of save uncertainty as to just how that will work its way through. President Lagarde, how do you think about the lags? I think of the lag in, in three steps, if you will. The first one is transmission in terms of uh, tightening of the financing terms that are made available and how markets absorb uh, the decisions that we make. And on that front, we have a good and reasonably rapid transmission. We see it in rates, we see it in volume of, of loans, and on both accounts, there is a good absorption and a rapid transmission of our monetary policy decision. But that's only step one. Uh, what we need to see is step two and how it materializes on investment by corporate and for households, it's predominantly mortgages. And for the euro area, it's, it's, there is a lot of heterogeneity because you have markets where mortgages are at fixed rate, markets where mortgages are at uh, floating rates, some that are readjusted every so many years. So we have to, we have to look at all those data very carefully but it seems that the transmission is likely to be less rapid than it had been in the past because there are many more fixed rate mortgages now in the euro area than there was, say, you know, 15 years ago. And that's not it. We need to see it then, you know, channel to the third step, which is inflation. So we want to see that transmission uh, strength through step one, step two, step three, and make sure that this is really having an impact in terms of uh, the fight we have against inflation. Governor Weda, do you worry about the, the impacts, the lagged impacts of their policies on the global economy and on your economy? Oh yes, but uh, for ourselves, uh, we haven't had any serious monetary tightening for three decades. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I was a board member of the BOJ 25 it's years much, ago. This is part of the whole business. What do they do? 20, 30 basis points. Wow. Now, minus 10 basis points. So, and it doesn't sound it, like it's changing anytime soon. So in, in terms of that, uh, the lag in the effects of monetary policy could be at least 25 years. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we all see what what will happen if we get to normalize policy seriously. Yeah. But we'll have to be very careful here. Be careful what you wish for, I guess. So 
Chair Powell, are you more worried about the lag impacts than they are? It, these, these people don't get laughed at, all right? What, what made everyone laugh was the fact that he was, he was cornered into telling the truth. And that's what people laughed at. And absolutely, these people are petrified. They're like, wait, whoa, wait, whoa, uh, ha, 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 shit. That's what's going on. They are because they're still hiking rates? I don't know. I, I wouldn't want to compare. I, <laughs> I would say, I would just say again, so what's, what's different this time is actually, though, that markets move substantially in, in anticipation of moves. So by the time we lifted off in March of, of 2022, the two-year had moved from 20 basis points up to 200 basis points. So financial conditions now move in expectation and our the whole modern communication strategy really helps that along. So that is different. What's, what may or may not be different, and we also haven't had this kind of tightening in, in three decades, really. We've had tightening, but it wasn't, wasn't it, it, this, this looks more like tightening cycles from you know, from the 70s and 80s. So, um, so what we see is is a, a picture of you know, literature that has you know you can you can the, the older literature says you know a year or two for activity and an add a year for inflation. Um, there's new literature that says it's much faster than that, and I think we just have to use our you know to, to watch and see what's happening. Um, there are beginning to be, uh, there are reasons to argue that it would be faster this time or slower this time, but I just don't think we know at this stage. Well, it kind of gets, it gets into the question about the markets and you're saying that it's a transmission mechanism. You're all talking very hawkishly and saying there's more work to be done and we're still worried about inflation. The markets pretty much think you're almost done, all of you guys. What, maybe one more hike in July and then done and then into cuts next year. Is that wrong, President Lagarde? You know, I look at the data we have. I look at the, I look at the mandate we have. I look at you know the, the. Oh, did you see her body language? Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> oh, they're getting. The, the transmission lag, and we've decided for ourselves that we would use three criteria. That's that's what we are focused on. Of course, we are not completely oblivious to what happens in markets, but we have to be guided by what the mandate is, what the data uh, delivers, and and what criteria we take into account in order to determine our policy and to establish our our, our stance uh, going forward. That that's the only way to go. But I guess you know there is there's financial conditions and I don't know, Governor Baylor, are they working against you? You're trying to fight inflation and MSCI world is, is up nicely this year. Well, by the way, I mean, the market, I don't think thinks we're nearly done at the moment. I mean, they've got uh, a number of uh, further increases uh, priced in for us. My response to that will be, 
well, we'll see, uh, because we are, as we were saying earlier, we're, we're essentially evidence-driven in that sense. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll make our decisions based on that. I think you're right to point out, as you said earlier, and I would draw this point out, that there are two parts to this. There's where the peak is and then how long it's sustained uh, beyond that. And I think both of those are relevant. Both of those are things that will, I mean, sorry to state the blind and the obvious, will emerge with time. Um, but I've always been interested that the market thinks that the peak will be quite short-lived in a world where we're dealing with more persistent inflation. Right. I mean, they, they did finally price out the cuts in the U.S. a few weeks ago. Market was primed for cuts. I, I assume you were pleased to see that that's no longer the case. So if you go back and look at um, forecasts from uh, the participants on my committee on inflation, you'll see, you know, we've been consistently thinking this is going to take some time. It's going to be a, a process that will take longer than we would have hoped. And it, it may well be a bumpy process, but markets have gone back and forth between pricing and what appearing to price in pretty quick declines in inflation to get coming back to being more in alignment with, with the thinking of the committee. And that's where we are right now is closer to where committee participants are. But as Christine said, you know, we, we don't, we're not focused on what the market's forecast is. We, we have our forecast, all of us who are on the committee, we work hard to develop an understanding of what's driving inflation and what the path forward for inflation is. We make our best estimates. And that still is that it's going to take some time. It's just going to take some time. Inflation has proven to be more persistent than we expected, not less. And of course, if that day comes when, when that turns around, that'll be great, but we don't expect that. We don't plan for it. So is it counterproductive to you that the stock market has rallied, the bond market has rallied? I mean, the market is fighting the Fed. The market thinks you're, you're closer to the end. And I, I mean, that, that does make con financial conditions easier. The, uh, you can't fight the Fed, but they're <laughs> fighting the Fed. Is that a problem? No, I don't you? see it that way. I don't look at it that way at all. Honestly, we have different jobs. You know, our job is to bring inflation down to 2% and sustain maximum employment. That's our job. That's what we think about. We look at the data and that's what we care about. And markets react, different parts of the market react in different ways. It's just, uh, it's just not something that is a principal focus of our work. But it did seem last year like you wanted a weaker stock market. It, you used the word pain at Jackson Hole. It seemed like you were trying to communicate that financial conditions should tighten, and less so this year. Is that right? Not really, no. Okay. Of course, our, we work through financial conditions. That's what we do. Our, our rate and our, you know, all the things we do and say work through financial conditions to affect the real economy. That's, that's how it works. Um, but it's broader financial conditions. So we're not focused on any one market. We're never thinking, oh, let's, let's do this to this market. It's just, in general, let's communicate what we want to do and, and, um, and why we want to do it. And financial conditions adjust. And that's, how, that's, that's really all we can do. We do not target particular parts of the market. Uh, although, of course, we do monitor market conditions. So you don't care what the stock market's doing? I look at broader financial conditions. It's okay. one of one of many, many conditions, along with interest rates, credit spreads, you know, everything, all of the conditions and availability of credit. It's one of many, many things. And again, we don't we don't focus on any one thing as as the key thing. Governor Wada, how important is it is it to you, the markets, as it relates to financial conditions and the mechanism for monetary policy? You mean the stock market? Stocks, bonds, currency. So stock prices have been rising fairly sharply uh, since, since spring this year. Um, stock prices 
theoretically are affected by interest rates and investors' view of the economy. We haven't changed interest rate, so uh, probably investors have become more optimistic about the future of the economy. Of course, we don't want serious financial imbalances in the economy, so we keep monitoring. How do you think about, President Lagarde, the risks to the economy, especially geopolitical risks? You know, in, in Europe now we have this, we were all glued last weekend to the news out of Russia and the Wagner rebellion, and we're wondering if now political instability in Russia presents a further geopolitical risk to the global economy. Well, I think I look at it, we all look at it, and we are all concerned about geopolitical development um, by virtue of the profession that we have because it does have an impact on, um, on supply chain, does an impact, it does have an impact on trade, it does have an impact on the uncertainty, and we can only say that at this point in time, uncertainty is high overall, and a big factor of that uncertainty has to do with the geopolitical um, difficulties and, and, and conflict or quasi-conflicts that abound at the moment. So yes, we, we are looking at that, but you know, do we have to take a, to make a moral judgment on this, that, or the other? This is not, this is not the job that we have, but it clearly has an impact on, on how the economy is going to change and, and be transformed, and whether it will have an impact that is inflationary or disinflationary, I think is, is also to be determined. I think there will be various schools of thought along those lines. Yeah, I wonder how you think about next winter. I mean. Europe got lucky. We but hope it's mild. <laughs> what if it's not? But, but, but storage is, what, 69%? Michael, the expert on Isabel's panel, said that 69% and we are going to hit 95% by the end of the summer. So that should put us in a good position for the winter. But I'll say one thing, which probably we had not factored in sufficiently, and maybe that applies to, to all of us, it's the resilience of our economies and the resilience of... Uh, the entrepreneur, the corporates, the, the way in which we, we have sort of, in a matter of a few months, reorganized ourselves. Um, you know, just think one year back, everybody thought that the, the German model was dead, that Europe was going to be completely uh, on its knees. Well, these things have, uh, have not happened, and, and the resilience has, has been demonstrated at all, at all levels of society. I totally agree with Christine on this. Um, that resilience, I mean, you see it when you talk to businesses. I spent a lot of time talking to businesses, and I've spent a lot of time in recent months talking to food producing businesses to try to understand the sort of, yeah, the, 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 the slower than frankly we expected decline in the rate of food inflation. And one of the things that I get quite consistently, and this is where sort of the Ukraine Russia situation comes through for real, is they say, well, you know, last year we bought forward. Uh, sort of supplies to a much greater extent than we would normally do because we were not confident we could actually get them. Consequences, we've locked in higher prices for, you know, sometimes they say six months to me. Um, and that, of course, is affecting the, you know, the passage of, 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 of inflation, particularly through food prices in this case. So these things do have a very direct effect and are continuing to have a very direct effect, actually. But there's nothing central bankers can do about that. Is there? Well, the first thing we need to do is understand it. Um, that's, a, that's a good starting point. Um, well, we have to then design... Yes, we can always keep crushing demand, but you can't do anything well, about Well, we have to design supply. policy. I mean, we have to design policy and you know, take our decisions with the best 
you know, we always take policy, you know, we always take policy decisions on a forward-looking basis. So we have to do it with the best information and understanding we can get of these things. So do you still, so to what extent, I guess, is the, the war in Ukraine driving supply-side inflation for materials around the world? Well, following on from what I was just saying, I think the conclusion I draw from that is, um, and this is what the businesses tell me, is yes, we are going to see actually a, you know, a fall in the rate of food price inflation, for instance, but it is taking longer than we expected. So that's what we have to factor in and decide how best to, in a sense, to respond to that with monetary policy. It's not just Russia. Uh, Governor Weda also, you know, we're following the tensions that have increased between the U.S. and China, between Europe and China. Do you think that's having a material impact on global growth? Well, at least uh, uh, there's a tendency to relocate production sites out of, say, China into other Asian economies, including, to some extent, Japan. So in, in the short run, this is uh, having a small positive effect on the Japanese economy through business fixed investment. But in the longer run, there will be uh, inefficiencies all over the place. So uh, we'll see. So Japan's a beneficiary of the flight out of China? Uh, in, in one sense and in the short run. But in the long run, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, Chair Powell, how do you, how do you think about, it's, it's obviously a risk and it hurts trade. How do you think about the US-China relationship as it impacts the economy? We don't have any role to play in, in the relationships between the countries. But, um, you know, China's a very large, important economy. It's a big trading partner, mainly consisted of, of, of us buying things that are made in China. I don't think, um, and of course, and the Chinese economy um, came out of the COVID and, and looked like it was recovering strongly. Now it doesn't, doesn't look like that. It looks like it's slowed down, and there, there are some issues there. From the U.S. standpoint, at the, mar at the margin, that probably means a little bit less global demand. I, I wouldn't say it's a first-order uh, consideration for us, though. How, do, how does the Ch Chair Powell reference the disappointing nature of the Chinese economic recovery? How does that play into Europe's recovery or the global growth picture? Well, first of all, I think we have to be attentive to the emerging market economies at large. Uh, at the moment, they are they are producing about 60% of global growth, some of which is now a bit more focused on domestic development and consumption and less so on trade. But if you look at the trade volume numbers from China to many other countries, particularly the advanced economies, that has not changed significantly. So the trade volume is, is still um, significant and the, you know, I'm not breaking any news here. The, the Chinese authorities themselves say that they're likely to have a 5% growth uh, this year in 23, rather than the 6% that they had initially uh, forecasted. So that will have an impact, given the size of the Chinese economy, on global growth at large. You so have we, have, we have to, you know, when, when, we, when we do our projections, when, when we look at the economy, we look at the global economy, and then we sort of, narrow down and zoom on the European economy and the euro area in particular, but everything that happens in China, in the United States, in the UK, in Japan, in emerging market economies actually matter for us because we are strongly interrelated and have been trading with each other for a long time. And if anything we've learned from COVID, in addition to the pain and suffering from, from many, it's the fact that we are vastly dependent 
for the supply of rare earth and various metals that will be critical for the development of the economy of tomorrow if we decide to firmly go towards the green economy that, that we should be aiming for. Um, you know, as an open economy, one of the things is just exactly as Christine says in terms of how we do our process, one of the things that we spend quite a bit of time on is world export prices. Now, actually, in the recovery from COVID, of course, this was the supply chain shock, we saw quite a big contribution to goods price inflation from world export prices. We're now seeing those prices uh, definitely start to weaken. Uh, so that will be another determinant going forward of policy. As central bankers, can you do you plan for the worst case scenarios on the geopolitical front? I mean, if China invades Taiwan, then what? What, what, does, what does a central banker do? Is that is that a is there a contingency for that, Chair Powell? We use our tools to achieve our our legal mandates. Uh, if that happens, <laughs> got that got that Fed speak down. <laughs> you'll have, you'll hold a special meeting. Special? No, I mean it, it's it's a volatile world we live in, right? And then so we impacts. we do have yeah. at every in every FOMC cycle we we look at our staff works up six or seven or eight alternative simulations and they simulate you know different things it's not so much geopolitical events mm. though it's more different ways the economy could play out and we all all the participants read those and think about them and talk about them and they come up come up in our meetings and talk about them so it's very helpful because you you can't get too focused on the modal path in a world where it's just very hard to predict the economy even when even in normal times it's very hard to predict the economy let alone times like today what sort of simulations do you talk about I'm going to leave that to your imagination. <laughs> <laughs> I bet I can think of a few. President Lagarde, Chair Powell did talk about, I mean, one of the things that I don't know that there was a simulation of is we had a few bank failures in the US this year. And um, I know it forced some of you into action to shore up banking systems. Are, are we in good shape now? Is the, is the global and European financial system in, in good shape? Have we healed? You know, I can only speak to the to, to the banks over which we have supervision, and the, those are the uh, the euro area, um, the European banks. But I'm looking at the euro area specifically. We have been, you know, enforcing Basel III to the entire banking sector. The capital ratios are are very high, 15.3%, if I recall. The leverage coverage, the liquidity coverage ratio, very high as well. So we have not experienced. Um, you know, the, the, the turmoil or the difficulties in Europe, and Europe does not include Switzerland, thank you very much. Um, but we are, we are extremely attentive, we reinforce the, uh, the stress testing constantly, we are uh, very, I'm very pleased to see that the Basel III agreement has now been reached, as I understand, between Parliament, the Council and the Commission, so that we can actually roll out Basel III uh, with as limited exception as possible. And we have to continue doing that job. Any lessons that you took, Governor Bailey, from what happened earlier this year? Well, let me start with a, with a sort of bit of backdrop. I think it's important, drawing on what Christine was saying, I think it's important to, in a sense, reflect the fact that the, you know, the regulatory changes we made after the global financial crisis have paid off in the sense that we have, we've been through, and we are going through some huge economic shocks and you know, the banking system, certainly I can speak again as Christine does, I can speak for the UK banking system, is resilient to them and is doing what we want it to do, which is support the economy, not the other way around, to be honest, going back to the crisis. So that's, yeah, that's an important starting point. Now, I think there are 
uh, important lessons from uh, important issues that we have to reflect on from what happened. Um, Christine made her subtle reference to Switzerland. Um, you know, <laughs> well, you know, there's a, there's a huge sense of irony in the British, Christine. <laughs> uh, look, I mean, there is obviously a question posed by credit, the Credit Suisse, uh, you know, handling, which is, are the resolution plans for the major banks that we've spent the last 15 years developing fit for purpose, or are they not fit for purpose? Um, and if, well, come to that, if they're not fit for purpose, then of course we cannot sit here and say all's fine, because um, clearly we're going to be, you know, regrettable though it would be after 15 years of work, we're going to have to sort of, you know, tear them up and start again. Now, I'll, I'll give you my view on it. I'm, I'm going to say this. I, don't, I have not yet heard the case made to me which suggests that they are not fit for purpose. I'm going to state that. But I'm not going to leave it there. We have got to have, you know, we've got to have, in a sense, we've got to have this out and decide whether, you know, it goes one way or the other. My starting point is I remain to be convinced of that assertion, but we can't let it rest there. I think we've all got the question of, you know, how our banking systems handle, you know, a steep rise in interest rates. We, you know, we do stress tests to test that. We've got uh, capital provisions for, you know, related to that. And we've all got to think hard. I think the third thing I'd say is we've got to think hard about the speed of run question. But I think we've got to think pretty carefully about that because, you know, if we go to extremes on that argument, we're essentially heading to narrow banking. And I, you know, speaking of myself, I don't think that is a sensible place to head to. So we've got to think quite, you know, quite, quite carefully, but quite, I think, creatively about how we maintain the banking system that does what we want it to do, which is create credit in the economy, create you know, assets that are naturally illiquid, and deal with the speed of run question. And, and we've got to take that one on. We're actually going to get stress tests this afternoon in the US, um, which I won't ask you about, Chair Powell. But I will ask if you think that the US reg regional banks are resilient right now. I do. I th so I think, first of all, I think the whole the overall banking system is strong and resilient with very high levels of capital and liquidity, very dub double the levels that they were at, and then some before the crisis. So the, the, the innovations that we put in place, the, the regulatory changes and, and higher capital, those are all in place in, in the United States as well. So when it comes to the, you know, the, the events we had earlier this year with three banks that had, you know, pretty pretty idiosyncratic um, uh, business models and funding models as well. I think we need to learn lessons and, and you know, we're not hiding from that at all. We understand there's there going to be need to be regulatory strengthening of both regulatory and supervisory practices as it relates to, to institutions of that of that general size, I would say. You got a lot of questions on that from Congress last week. That's mostly what they wanted to talk about. They want to make sure that you aren't, well, in part, not going to increase capital levels and, and sort of choke off the small and regional banks in this country and make it hard for them to compete. So it, it, the U.S. has something like 4,500 banks. It's the, you know, the most banks by a pretty big margin, I think, of any, any major economy. And, and we think it's a real benefit to have banks of different sizes and business models that serve local communities and offer different products, as well as, as having the large banks. And the large banks in the United States are very strong, well-capitalized, a lot of liquidity. Um, and they've been a source of strength, I think, through the last couple of uh, events. So the, the um, uh, I think it's important that that whatever changes we do make, keep in mind the need to preserve the business models of these of of, of 
of smaller banks and not just of the largest banks. Any concerns for you, Governor Weda, on the on the strength of the global financial system at this point as we go through this, I don't know, once in several decades tightening period? I, I, I can only talk about Japanese banks. Mm -hmm. uh, I think they are well capitalized. They're capitalized. They have enough liquidity. Uh, it's true that some smaller banks, regional banks, are sitting on uh, non-negligible amount of valuation losses in their security holdings. But on average, that's about 1% of their core loan capital. So it could be okay. But if we do get to normalize our monetary policy, because we get into, go into the 2% inflation rate equilibrium in the sense I discussed earlier, then rates may go up by large margins. And we'll have to be careful. Uh, we'll have to be carrying out all sorts of stress tests, I think. I also wanted to ask you if you go into a more normalization stance away from negative rates and the yield curve control, if you, how you'll manage the risk of the, the government's enormous financing needs and whether that's a, a concern that you think about. Well, uh, we, we keep saying that's the business of uh, the government and the diet. To, to, to create a sustainable uh, government finance. Fiscal policy in general, I'm curious if, if you guys will bite on this. Um, <laughs> is it helpful right now uh, or, or hurtful? President Lagarde. You know, everybody has to do what everybody has to do. Man's got to do what a man's got to do. Monetary policy uh, makers have to decide on monetary policy, and fiscal um, policy makers have to have to do their job. It is true that there are circumstances where working hand in hand and supporting each other has proved helpful. I think we had a very good demonstration this morning in one of the lectures that we had. I think what we have very clearly stated. Uh, as a governing council of the whole euro system is uh, governments, please, it's time now to roll down the measures that you had decided for COVID and for energy purposes, and that you adopt a path that will take you to better um, sustainability of your public finance. So we hope to see that. Um, and, uh, you know, the fiscal space that has been allowed for the various uh, non-conventional fiscal support that were decided back in 22 and 23 uh, very much should be rolled uh, back in the course of 23 and certainly should not be expanded in 24, bearing another major shock. But that, that's, that's our recommendation and we make it very clear in our monetary policy statement and have made it very clear in the last statement that we issued. I mean, we learned in the UK, what was it last year, when, when monetary and fiscal policy don't work together, it can be a big problem. Well, of course, what we had to deal with in the UK last autumn was actually a financial stability issue, and we dealt with it, and um, it was very clear that that was, that was the issue we dealt with. We didn't deal with anything more than that. It's not our job to, to, to get involved in fiscal policy in that sense. And, yeah, we always, you know, when setting monetary policy, take fiscal policy as announced uh, as, as a conditioning assumption for our, you know, for our decisions. 
So I don't go beyond that in terms of commenting on the stance of fiscal policy. I mean, the one thing I've said in, in recent times, and I don't mind saying it again, is that I welcome the fact that you know, the Chancellor is, is you know, very much using fiscal policy to try to address the structural issues in the economy. Uh, so that's not a comment about the stance of fiscal policy, about you know, more or less. It's a comment about the fact that, going back to the point you know, I've made about labour markets, uh, you know, and, and, and actually the, you know, the low potential rate of growth in the UK economy, that you know, the more we can do to tackle that, frankly, the better. What about you, Chair Powell? I mean, there's been a lot of fiscal largesse in the United States, the COVID stimulus, and, and now even new policies that are just filtering through, like Inflation Reduction Act, infrastructure, CHIPS, there's still American Rescue Plan Act money getting doled out. Isn't that making your life harder? Well, so echoing my colleagues, um, our, our assignment is to deliver price stability kind of regardless of the stance of, uh, of fiscal policy. And we, we don't play a role, formal or informal, in advising the fiscal authorities. There are other agencies in Washington that do that, and that, that's really not our job. I will add, though, uh, without, getting, without crossing any lines, that you know, the spending during the pandemic was, was very high, and it's come down. And so we look at the fiscal impulse from the level of spending, and it's really not material. Uh, it may even be slightly contractionary, but let's just say it's, it's flat. You, you identified those bills, and um, I think you are seeing some of that money showing up in construction, these construction numbers. It's supporting construction activities, particularly the infrastructure bill. But I, I wouldn't say that that's a, you know, you, if, you, if you look at, uh, where the inflation is in the economy, I, w I wouldn't say that that's an important driver of inflation or something that we that we think about or consider. So you mentioned the consumer. So the excess savings you think have pretty much come down. Where, where do you think the U.S. So consumer is headed? Consumer, the consumer had savings from two sources. One was just the, the fact that people couldn't travel and couldn't do couldn't kind of spend money on services. That was a lot of it, and there, there were also the fiscal transfers that happened. And those, I mean, I, there, there are many different estimates. I would say. For, for people at the lower end of the income spectrum who tend to have a high marginal propensity to consume, most but not all of that money is gone. So there's a residual, there's certainly some residual support for spending in that, in, you know, in laws that passed at the beginning and during the pandemic. But that's, again, I wouldn't say that's today the, the main driver. I think if you look at the strength of the labor market, still creating more jobs than, than there are new entrants to the, uh, to the labor market, you're, and wages are still pretty high, so you're 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 driving up disposable income, and that is driving con consumption, and that's driving the economy. Wanted to also ask you guys about the uh, the balance sheet, very hot topic. Um, Governor Weda, how do you think about the expansion of the balance sheet, and how? Oh, this is where it starts to get good. I mean, really, really good. Because now they're talking about the balance sheets. I don't know if you guys have ever watched a live uh, Federal Reserve uh, event. They do not talk about the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve. That's... That's the third rail. Here we go. How much is too much? Well, it's a tough question to, to answer. At the moment, uh, we are using 
government security purchases to, to hit the range or the long-term interest rate we have set, which is zero plus minus 50 basis points. So the size of the balance sheet is an endogenous variable. The rest of you are kind of in shrink, it, shrink mode in the balance sheet, a roll-off mode. How, you've been more aggressive, Governor Bailey. How, has, it, has it gone smoother than you expected? Well, so far, I don't want to tempt fate, it's gone very smoothly, actually. I, by the way, the reason that you say more aggressive, just to be clear, is that we've got a longer duration of uh, bonds in our portfolio, government bonds in our portfolio. So uh, leaving it to an organic runoff would mean a lot longer runoff for us, I think. That's why you're outright cases. selling. So that's why we're selling it. So we, the target we set for the year, the 80 billion target, was, was the sum of the, the natural runoff plus the difference between the target we set and, uh, and that. And it's that element that we're doing as active sales. So that's gone, I, I, I would say, very smoothly, actually. So far, I'm very happy with the way it's gone. I think the second question that yeah, we're certainly looking at actively, of course, is just how far will we go? Uh, and I look at it particularly in terms of the stock of reserves now in the system before we hit what I would call the equilibrium level of reserves. Now, we may go on selling the, the QE stock below that because we would shift our operations around. I would expect to do that. But it's, it's important to focus on where we think that sort of natural level of the balance sheet, which won't be constant over time, by the way, but where we think that natural level of the balance sheet is relative to where we are today. How do you think about it, President Lagarde? And is there pressure building for you to go faster when it comes to well, shrinking say, the balance sheet? I would say that the, uh, the interest rate is the primary tool that we're using at the moment. Um, second, there is a, a, the, almost a contractual uh, reduction of the balance sheet of the ECB because there is a reimbursement of the Teltro that we had put in place uh, during the pandemic and and that is actually happening now if if not yesterday or the day before. Third, uh, as of the 1st of July, we will stop any reinvestment under the asset purchase program. So there is a, a, a natural declining of the balance sheet of the ECB, which is only you know, a first step. We are discussing our operational framework. Hopefully we will be able to complete that work in the next six to nine months. And that will really determine the size, the desirable size of our balance sheet, which is always a factor of also the circumstances and the situation we are in. But is, that, that is coming. Is it going smoother than you thought it would as well, Chair Powell, QT? So it's, it's working as we, as we had hoped and expected it would work. We, are, you know, we have a pass, entirely passive program as treasuries and mortgage-backed securities mature. They roll off subject to a cap. And it's been moving along uh, at a pace. The, the underlying pace, if you hit the cap, is about a trillion dollars a year. And reserves appear to be quite ample, so it has a ways to go. Is there anything that would make you speed that up or slow that down? You know, we always say that we're prepared to adjust in light of evolving conditions, but I, I don't see anything that would cause us to want to do that right now. Okay, so in the, in the moments that we have left, you know, we've talked about a lot of the risks. We've talked a lot about um, mm -hmm. some of the concerns out there. I want to here it's some optimism maybe and and what makes you makes you feel i mean you none of you are really talking doom and gloom on recession but what what makes you president lagarde optimistic right now in my, my professional field <laughs> <laughs> however you want to interpret the question personally Otherwise, there are lots of things that make me happy uh, and i hope for all of you 
you know, I'll just mention one, one, uh, one success, uh, which I'm really proud of, and I'm very proud that Fabio Panetta was the one who led that exercise um, on behalf of the entire group. Today, the European Commission has published the legislative draft for the European uh, digital, for, for, the, for the digital euro, for, the, for our CBDC. And that gives me hope because I think that it, it, it really demonstrates the capacity to innovate, the capacity to work as a team, the capacity to anticipate what digital payments will be tomorrow. Now, some people are very skeptical and they say, well, you're taking risk, financial stability, possible runs that will be accelerated by this. And all I would say is, number one, you have to be ready. You want to keep the sovereignty of your currency. Uh, you know, so many years ago, who would have thought about all the users and the applications that you have on your cell phone? None of us. So being prepared, being ready, paying attention to what actually Europeans and particularly young Europeans want in terms of, of currency and form of currency is something that uh, we, are, we have been doing, uh, that we have accelerated, that we have not decided for, for sure, but at least the legislative piece is on the table. There will be a lot of discussion. And that's in a way also the result, one of the good benefit of COVID. We have talked about the downside of COVID and the consequences, but the way in which so many of us have become more digital, better equipped, probably more productive, it will be demonstrated probably with a lag time. But when I look at my member states, the countries that were least digital have really uh, traveled very fast to become much more digital. So that's a good reason to hope. And the resilience demonstrated, but I have mentioned that earlier on, by everybody from the, from the, the, the individuals to the entrepreneur to the corporates to, to governments we, in Europe decided to get together to borrow jointly um, despite the fact that it's laborious, that it's painful, that it gives a lot of things to report about to a journalist is also a sign of progress. And just to be clear, a digital euro will happen when? That will be decided by the governors in governing council. We will decide that at the end of October, and then there will be another phase of piloting, experimenting, fine-tuning, because if and when we go, as will be decided by the governing council at large, we want to get it right. So we're not going to do a, you know, a half start or a fake uh, start. We will, we will move with, with success. What makes you optimistic, Governor Bailey? Well, actually, I'm going to build on Christine's theme because as well as you know, we're also working on retail digital euro, we're actually also working on wholesale digital, uh, digital money and completely rebuilding our wholesale payment and settlement system in the Bank of England to enable what could be a complete revolution in, in the infrastructure of financial markets and trade finance. And this is very exciting. So we put the wiring in a lot the weekend before last. The engine should go in next year. And you know, this, this has enormous potential to change, uh, change the world at the wholesale level as well. It's interesting. You know, I feel like the world has moved on to AI beyond digital payments. Are you guys incorporating AI into your thinking about economies and your toolboxes? I think we're all on a learning curve. I, I don't know, I feel quite old when it gets to this, but um, yes, I mean, we're looking at it in two respects, certainly. One is, uh, well, three respects. One is how it will affect the economy. Two, how we can use it ourselves, uh, both in our sort of, you know, analytical functions, but also actually in our operational functions. Um, and 
Yeah, we're looking at, but we're looking at it, I, say, I would say, with very open eyes. You can see the strengths and you can see the, you know, the current weaknesses of it. Um, and of course, it moves, it moves very rapidly. So yes, we're having to, certainly I can speak for ourselves, we're having to you know, devote quite a bit of time now to what the potential is for that. Chair Powell, is AI one of the things that makes you optimistic? So on AI, we're just doing what everyone else is doing. We're trying to get smart about it, and and um, it's going to—it obviously has huge possibilities. Technologies tend to, you know, propagate through the economy fairly slowly, and this one may be the exception, maybe not. I don't know, but it's something that we're we're spending a lot of time on, way too early for conclusions. I, I wouldn't use optimism, but I, I would say this, in answer to your first question, which is, when inflation first arrives, it's it's really due to very strong demand for goods and goods goods pipelines that just aren't working and shortages. So that's where it comes from. It wasn't about the labor market at all, right? It, or very much. As we get to this stage and to the to looking forward, we think it will be significantly about getting the labor market supply and demand back in alignment. I would say it's a positive thing. I'll say it that way. It's a constructive thing that we've been able to raise rates 500 basis points with the expectation of going further and we still have a very strong labor market, but nonetheless one that is in fact cooling in, in just the way we would have hoped, which is to say through things like lower job uh, openings. Job openings are coming down. The quits level has returned to its pre-pandemic level. Wages have, you know, if you look at employment compensation index or average hourly earnings, they've moved down about 1% towards more, still very high, but towards more, so a more sustainable level that's consistent with 2% inflation. So I would just say that's the makings of, if, if that process continues in a gradual way without really any effect on employment, the longer that goes on, the better. And in, in a way, that's, that's I, I take that as a very constructive path. It is not guaranteed, but the fact that this is really there, and that's what's been happening for a year, well, more than a year into our tightening cycle, I would take as, as a positive thing and perhaps a hopeful one for the future. Just be careful not to overdo it, right? Right. <laughs> Right. What about you, Governor Weida? Let's see. Uh, as other central banks are thinking of issuing digital monies, we are taking a different route, and we have decided to issue new currency bills starting next year. You're Hopefully, going all in paper. Th th this will cheer up uh, public's confidence in, in the BOJ. <laughs> more, more, more seriously, uh, <laughs> as I said, wages have uh, started to rise uh, at 2% 2, 2 or so for the first time in three decades. Uh, more importantly, we are seeing All right, now. I wanted to end it there because that's all that guy needs to say. Did you hear how he said, we're, we're not going for a digital currency. Japan is this close to moving over with China and the bricks. See, Japan is iffy right now, and everyone knows it. 
they don't know who's going to win this. And they're not sure that the American system is actually going to win. They're not sure at all. And that, my friends, is what is, what has them worried, right? That's, it's so, uh, shall we say, up in the air because the globalists are, are not in a structure of power. They're losing in Ukraine. Russia is kicking the chip out of Ukraine. NATO is in deep trouble. The global banking system, the Western global banking system is this close to going bye-bye because the BRICS, once the BRICS officially launch the gold backed currency that's gonna that's gonna set a new price for gold and they know it and the US knows that it's gonna be a war against the gold and the Bitcoin. And it's it's gonna be one hell of a war. Now, there's a few other things I wanna show you before our special guest gets here. Let me share another screen. All right, now, if you guys have not gone to see this movie, I'm gonna try and see it this week. This movie is causing ripples, right? Rip, I won't even use ripples. It's causing an earthquake out here. Listen to this.
right, hang on one second. Let let me adjust the sound here real quick. These bio labs, I think it's much, this is part of the whole business. What do they do with them in the bio labs when I they think, receive them? Well, um, either making the adrenochrome or they're using it to, um, from what I was told, um, is, is that and also for making agents to, you know, kill people with it. So, you know, if you're, if I'm a, a half Irish, half Swiss, they can get my DNA code and create a, a cocktail and put it off in an airplane. And I'm the only one that dies of a heart attack in the plane. And then you watch a James Bond movie. You go, boy, that's really weird. So, wow. I'm telling you folks, things are getting weird. The amount of truth that is coming out right now is unbelievable. All right, we have our special guest here. And uh, uh, let me actually do a word from our sponsor, which is Calyx Solutions. And if you order a laptop, either the crypto laptop or the Liberty laptop, Randy, Miss Teen Crypto, will receive an amount of money from each one of them that calls and uses the name Randy when you order your laptop. So, needless to say, without further delay, here is Randy, Miss Teen Crypto. Hello, how's it going, Ben? Hello, beautiful. How are you? I'm chilling. How are you? I'm happy oh, to be I'm, here. I'm doing great. I thank you for joining us. I um, we've actually uh, I've actually, actually been live for almost two hours now. Oh. We uh, well, there's so much freaking going on right now that like every show gets longer and longer because. More and more is going on. I feel the same way. And we just watched an hour and a half interview of all of the uh, the central bank heads of like Bank of Japan, uh, 
uh, the Federal Reserve, the E, uh, uh, European Union, you know, Central Bank, all of them. And they are physically, you can see them. They're nervous. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Why wouldn't they be? Yeah. And, and I just want to pick your brain. And by the way, who's the first person in crypto? Whoever told you you'd be famous? It, it was you. It was you. You were really one of like my first supporters, 100%. And uh, you know I appreciate you so much. I tell you all the time. And I was also telling uh, the Zesty fam about it on my YouTube channel this morning. I mean, I will never forget October 30th, 2020. It was a beautiful day. First meetup. You invited me. I brought you cookies. We all shared love and positivity. And like it was just a really good day. And I'll never forget that. So, yeah, I'm very happy about it. I'm very happy about where we are now too because it's just been a crazy ride and i can't believe like i was 17 there and now i'm 20 almost 21 so it's just like time flies it's incredible i am so proud of you i've seen you on i think fox news like two or three times yep uh and i think you were on cnbc not one. yet not yet. One uh, day. One day. We'll Not yet. I'm there. working on it. <laughs> we'll get you there. All right. Uh, now, I want to pick your brain on, on what do you see out there? Because you are a, you, you're out with the general public all the time. Yeah. You, uh, you absorb crypto news like I do. You're always like, <laughs> just yeah. it up. What has you most excited and what has you most worried about the global economy in general? What has me worried, of course, is the money printing, right? Because all of these central bankers, especially like the Bank for International Settlements, you look at them, they're like private little live streams that like I've gotten access to that are literally unlisted on YouTube, meaning like the only people that could watch a stream are the people that have the link, which is, of course, like an exclusive group. So, um, you know, I was lucky enough to like get one of these links sent to me and I was watching, um, you know, I even had it on my show this morning where I was playing the clip because these are a lot of like unelected bureaucrats that are making decisions for all of us. And then, you know, they turn on the money printer and, you know, who pays the consequence? It's the everyday person. It's not the uh, it's not the billionaires or the central bankers. You know, they talk about like the richest people in the world, but that's just like who are the richest public figures. It's not the really the richest people. The richest people are the people that have like control over the money. And I think that's very obvious. And I think that's why they're physically, like you were saying, scared of Bitcoin, because why wouldn't you be scared of de something decentralized, something where there are are cross-border payments that are instant peer-to-peer -peer, something without an intermediary in charge of it something where people actually own something yeah that's scary because they have the objective you own nothing and you're happy yeah it's 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 and i've always said this everyone's like oh they're in it for the money they're in it for the money these are the people that print the money. Yeah, they're in control of it all. Right. If it was about the money, 
it, that doesn't make any sense. You know, if you actually produce the donuts, you're not worried about having enough friggin' donuts. <laughs> you make the donuts. You're the donut maker. It's it's all about the control of Absolutely. the populace. And with cryptos and blockchain, decentralized cryptos and decentralized blockchain. It's it's the choice of the people is ripping the control out of their hands. And that's why they're actually going after, you know, Coinbase, Kraken, all of these exchanges but at, at the same time you got blackrock out there because we all know they're going to get it yeah i think that with everything going on they know their system can't compete so now they're trying to get into the new system while they're they're trying to frighten retail out of it yeah. your thoughts yeah i do think of, of course i agree with you of course they want to scare retail right because blackrock you could look at you know they're investing in micro strategy so they have like many kind of like circuits and if you look at micro uh, if you look at blackrock they pretty much own everything um so it's just like you know what don't they have their hands in right so you know a lot of people are waiting for blackrock's approval for many things and of course you know for a tradpie like person they're like oh you know if some if blackrock's investing in something or they're interested in something then whoopee uh but you even like look at the Fox interview with uh, Liz Clayman and Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock. And he's talking about how, you know, with Bitcoin, though, he said he's not personally invested, you know, who knows? Uh, but right. Yeah, you know, so we don't really have proof of that. But, you know, we could always speculate on it. But he's like, although he's not directly invested in Bitcoin, he does see the potential of people owning something of not having an intermediary. So when you think about it, it's smart for BlackRock. Why Why would you want an old system where you're transferring money and it's not efficient, it's not fast, and it's actually costly and you know time consuming? So you know why don't you just get involved in Bitcoin where there are no intermediaries and it's peer to peer. So that way your bottom line is cheaper anyway and you end up saving money. So but that doesn't mean they don't have their hands in like CBDCs and other payment companies because, you know, they have their hands in everything. So they they could tout Bitcoin all they want. But it's also like you have to look behind the scenes. What are they really investing in? What are their real goals um, for the populace? Because, again, they own so many things. It does kind of control every industry. So it's really yeah. it's, it's a deep, dark rabbit hole, man. But yeah, I think uh, for Normie, this interview was great. You know, go BlackRock. But it's they're already telling us stuff we know that Bitcoin does revolutionize the traditional finance, the financial system in general, where you just take out the banks, you take out the intermediaries that all have the same objective, which is holding your money and not giving it to you when you want it and, you know, controlling how you spend your money. Because even if you look at people now, 
They try to interact bank account to bank account. They can't send their money or they're trying to buy crypto. You look at Santander UK, you look at all these, uh, like even MasterCard and all these other places, they're limiting how much crypto you could buy or if you could buy crypto at all. So, you know, the traditional financial system already is super controlling. So again, Bitcoin answer and BlackRock already clarified that for that for us. And I do think that hopefully that encourages more people to get involved in Bitcoin and the ETFs are just going to help people get more exposure. Because what I found interesting is I was talking to a hedge fund manager and they said that they control how much you could invest in certain things. So they could tell you how much actual Bitcoin you could buy. So then they have to go and get other exposure to the space like ETF. So I think it could help the hedge funds in a way as well. Oh, absolutely. And, and see, what, and this is where Michael Saylor has been a rock star. Yeah. Is what so many, so many of these corporations are realizing is if they get involved with the Bitcoin now, and it goes on, I just read earlier, and I actually called a friend up in New York just to verify that what I read was right. And there are hedge funds, insurance companies that are well underwater. I, they're in deep trouble. But according to their calculations, if if they front run the next year and a half worth of growth using Bitcoin, that they could use the profits off of that, and it would actually save their friggin' companies. And that's what they're realizing. Is, wait a second. This is a global uh, sponge of economic energy. Oh, yeah. If we get ahead of it, as it grows at historical rates even, just normal historical rates, that their balance sheets at the end of a year and a half are in the black again. And that's what these people are waking up to, that the corporate savior is the same as the individual savior, which is Bitcoin. Your yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, if you look at the banks in general, they're they're deep, deep water. I mean, if you our traditional financial system is so I guess, um, fragile, as I, I could maybe put it. Thanks, thanks, other miner. Appreciate that. Uh, the 99 cent super chat. I do think that, uh, you know, the banks, they, they're like, okay, you know, we're in trouble. We need another way out. Because if you look at SVB, right, when SVB collapsed, if they didn't save SB, SVB, that 
actually caused ripple effects throughout the world. So you had Credit Suisse, UBS, like a bunch of things going on internationally. So it shows that not only is the traditional financial system very like fragile in the U.S., but it's a global ripple effect because all the banks are connected. The central banks are connected. I, I like to like compare it to Walmart. Like, you know how Walmart varies like in the north and the south, maybe in the south you could buy a little, you know, uh, crazy firecrackers or maybe something in the south. But in like somewhere in New York, you can't buy anything. It's like pretty plain, you know. Same thing for the central banks. Like, you know, they're in different locations, but they all pretty much do the same thing. They're just a little bit different on how they feel about certain topics, right? Uh, but the overall goal is the same, which is to sell, like, sell everything to the masses, right? Um, and I think that's very interesting. But if you look at SVB, that was a ripple effect that took over the entire world. The whole banking system was like under stress. What do we do? Which bank is getting acquired by here? What are the real balance sheets? Who's over leveraged here or there? And then you know, Janet Yellen was like, you know, everything's okay. Let's bail out SVB when she said originally she wasn't going to do it. Then everything was fine. Band-Aid put on, scratch covered. Then all of a sudden, First Republic started having issues. Oh, oh, sheesh, First Republic halted nine times in one day. The stock literally went to zero because it got acquired by JP Morgan. The biggest bank got bigger. So it just shows you nothing is nothing is stable. On top of that, there was a study that came out 722 banks lost over 50% of their capital within the first quarter of this year. We're over six months into the new year. We haven't heard any stats on that. We own, And that's, the again, the lack of transparency that's in the traditional financial system. So now people are like, hey, what's our way out? What's something where we could hedge against inflation? We could hedge against bank runs. Oh, Bitcoin. So now what, what are we seeing now? ETFs. We're seeing all these banks now investing in Bitcoin, all these payment rails now working with Bitcoin and blockchain and for interoperability, MasterCard, what, what they're doing now. Oh, we want an interoperability between blockchains. That's what we're missing here. We want to give people the trust, the foundation, which inevitably leads to their mission for CBDCs. But that's a whole other rabbit hole. Um, but yeah, I definitely think that uh, Bitcoin is the savior. And I do think that they're starting to realize that they need another way to be involved in a financial ecosystem period that could give them some sort of lifeline and longevity. We know money is going digital. Inevitably, it should be something we own and something that has staying power. And even like Larry Fink said, Bitcoin is an international asset. So anyone, any bank, anywhere could really get involved in this asset. And it's not it's not really some murky water, right? Because it's all transparent. Yeah. And, and, and although I do believe that a lot of the leaders of our global monetary system are absolutely control freaks. I think a lot of these corporations are now just looking for a way out, you know, some solution. And they're realizing that the Federal Reserve, the ECB, <laughs> the Bank of Japan, they don't have it. They don't have it's it's and these central banks, they think everyone oh well they just want quicker, you know, transactions. No. It's the manipulation we don't want. Exactly. 
at the end of the day, there is manipulation everywhere. Even again, you look at SVB, right? Why wasn't that watched by all these regulatory people that are sending out like the SEC? They sent out investor alerts earlier this year. They're like, watch out for crypto. It's too volatile. Then all of a sudden the bank stocks are down 90 plus percent and some literally went to zero like we discussed. They didn't watch over SVB where like two years before there was a total of like 80 plus million dollars that was cashed out by executives and around three, two to three million that was cashed out a few weeks before the collapse. On top of that, there were international entities that got money before people did, right? So SVB, it collapsed. There were people waiting outside for their money because they were like, what's happening here? Then you had Israel, their biggest banks cashed out over a billion dollars right before the collapse. So they obviously knew something we didn't, which again is manipulation. And it's not fair that people every day, they kind of like the news kind of made it out to seem like, and that really frustrated me that there were only rich people that were caught up in SVB, that there's just millionaires that just like don't have their money for two days. No. Those were payroll that was going to everyday people. So there were videos of people waiting out there like it was Black Friday at Best Buy with their lounge chairs trying to get their money out of the bank. Then it comes to the point where you're waiting out there for hours. You finally get in the door. How much money could they actually give you? Then at that point, if no one has their money anymore, where are you putting that cash that you have under your mattress? You're posing a physical threat to yourself. So the only way you could really hedge against bank runs, hedge against inflation and hedge against like actual danger physical danger is bitcoin because someone could come in your house and it's like where is it they they can't get it so i i don't know i maybe i'm crazy i i don't know no no, no. and <laughs> and to your point this weekend i was out at the lake of the ozarks yeah. and me and a friend of mine were out fishing well, the guy driving our boat had money in, I think it was, I think it was Silver Bank. Oh, I, yes. Yes, and, yes, yes. And he's just a regular guy. And he flipped out. He was like, oh, what the hell? I you think know? he's Flagstar now, right? I think so, yeah. Yeah, I saw it in my neighborhood. It's really freaky. It's really weird. I don't yeah. like that. It's, it's, and that's what they do. They just swap it out for a different name. You know, good enough. It's, it's all a sham because the whole system, they say the strength of the system is the ability to manipulate it. Yeah, I mean, that's because they have the money, so they have the power to manipulate everything. But that's why they're scared of Bitcoin, because if we have the money, we have the power, and we could make the change we want to see. Bingo. And and they think that, oh, uh, causing inflation, you know, only 2% a year, which means you lose all of your money in like 14 years it's that that manipulation is a good thing well how about we lose zero of our money how's that sound? <laughs> that would be great that sounds great well that's the difference between the central bank structure where they they don't value your 
overall purchasing power. The cryptocurrency people, that's our whole goal, is, is not only save your purchasing power, but grow it. And that's what Bitcoin does. It's That's why I've said, whether you're conservative, liberal, communist, whatever, that's why I know flat out communists who love Bitcoin because it literally is the the whole network accumulating value as we grow. That's like the communistic dream. And if it's every it's if it's every hand. Right. And it's it's um it's the conservatives love it like myself because it is an honest representation of our labor. And if you look at Bitcoin, this is the key to everything. It aligns with nature. Bitcoin is a value added system. That's what nature is, is value added system. As you plant a seed, it absorbs energy from the earth. It grows. A seed is worth a nickel. A small tree is worth a dollar. A larger tree is worth $5. A huge tree is worth $1,000. What's the difference except the accumulation of natural energy? I love that. Time. I love that. That is why Bitcoin is going to win because if the the central bank economy is is the complete opposite of nature. You cannot print up more seeds. It has to be from something growing in order to grow. Nothing that is dead will grow. I agree. So they print up useless dollars and claim that it's a seed. While Bitcoin uses energy through the mining, which has a cost, which is energy, it's all nature. Energy feeds energy, adds value. While the central banks, it's all an illusion of value. That's why the central banks are dying. That's why Bitcoin's growing, because it aligns with nature. 
You know, and that's actually really funny that you say that because in the economic report of the president, I was reading, I showed it on my show too. And it was just saying like, they said the definition of money is is value or money that's issued by a sovereign country and that value is given by the central bank like what is the value of the central bank how is that value when they say what is the value of bitcoin when that's energy that's time and energy put into the asset which then is given a, which then gives the people that are putting energy into it a reward and then that reward, it, which is the Bitcoin, obviously, is spread throughout the world. It's peer to peer. And again, like with people. And I think that's, again, like goes with nature is like the word of mouth and like, you know, people interacting with people directly instead of all these intermediaries. I don't think we were supposed to have intermediaries with a lot of things, you know, like with food, like getting your food right out of the ground. Now, like we have intermediaries for everything. Now in New York, if they're if like the trucker stopped trucking, then we only got three days of food in the city. Like what are yeah. we do now? But um, at least with Bitcoin, right? Like maybe we could we could have access to money so we could buy more food. Um, <laughs> but it's actually insane. Um, and I don't think it's human nature, like you said, to have all these intermediaries. And that's why Bitcoin just aligns with so many people, especially with owning something and like, you know, literally printing new money out of thin air, which is what the central banks do. And I was even like showing um, the Zesty fam about uh, Project Hamilton. I don't know if you know about Project Hamilton. Oh, you do, right? yeah. yeah. So if you look in the framework for that, then they're like, OK, who's the transaction processor, the central banks and how does it work? Well, if I send you twenty dollars and you in CBDC, then it basically erases my twenty dollars and like deletes it and issues you twenty new dollars. So how does that even make sense? It's literally like monopoly money and it's so funny monopoly came out like with like the digital card version of it and it's just like it's all ironic how it all plays into things now but literally monopoly money and probably even worse than that um because when you run out of like that one pack of money you got to go out to the store and get another one so it's a little bit more inconvenient than just pressing a button and making the virtual money printer go burr but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's like actually insane it's what they do is they argue that what gives the central bank value and gives the money, quote unquote money, they produce value is the full faith and credit of, of yeah. the government. Yeah. Well, what is that? That's the ability for the government to tax. That's all it is. Without taxation, the government doesn't produce value it, at all. It's, it's a ledger system for the value produced by the citizens. And then they print up dollars hyperinflate away all of our labor value that is stolen from the taxes. Yep. It's 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 so corrupt that anyone who looks at it for maybe 10 minutes goes, all right, this is crap. Right. <laughs> but Introducing them to Bitcoin, they're like, oh, it's so volatile. 
Oh no. If if you look at the price price of Bitcoin, what that is is it's showing you a chart of the volatility of the lies of the central bank losing credit. It has whenever the price of Bitcoin rises, it's more people realizing the Federal Reserve notes are lies. They don't hold the value. And, And people, when they actually purchase the Bitcoin with the fiat, it's they value the Bitcoin more than the fiat. That's what you're doing. You're selling your dollars and you are buying the Bitcoin. And that chart that we see going up, if you flip it, that's the level that the people are actually finding this less valuable and it's and now we've reached a point where the slippery slope of fiat uh, credibility is falling off a cliff and that's why the federal reserve has to print money on one side of the building and then retract it out of certain areas of the economy to try and wrangle in inflation. So they're printing and they're absorbing at the same time. That's having their cake and eat it too. Right. That's (laughs) drowning. Right. When you're moving, but you're sinking, you're drowning. And that's what the Federal Reserve and the rest of these are doing. That's why the video that we've been watching for the last hour and a half, it is so comical because now they're at the point where they're full underwater. There's no hope of getting their heads above the water. Now they're trying to grab onto anything. They don't care if they got to grab Bitcoin and let Bitcoin save them. They don't care if they have to grab Ethereum and let Ethereum save them. Something needs to save them. And they know it's not anything that can come from them. They're CBDCs. They're drowning and they can't pull something out of their pocket that's going to keep them afloat because it's already in their pocket. Yep. 
I mean, if you even look at the Bitcoin chart, like you were saying, um, and you look at like people's reactions to things, if you look at Signature, um, when Signature Bank went down, Bitcoin like went up. And I'm like, you see all these bank stocks starting to collapse and Bitcoin's still going up and it's up over like 80% for the new year, I think. So it's just like, how, how do you, how do you compare like, you know, Bitcoin to even like any part of the market or like, you know, it's honestly, it's funny to me how people are like, oh, you know, Bitcoin, you, I don't really believe in it. It's too volatile, this and that. But how are people hedging against everything that's going on right now? And even if you look at other countries as well, where people aren't banked um, and or they're receiving their payments on, let's say, their paycheck on Friday and they have to spend it by Monday because inflation's so bad. So, you know, Bitcoin is really saving a lot of people. And like you said, it's literally people exiting and saying, hey, I'm opting out of a system where I'm controlled, out of a system where I don't get to choose when the money printer goes burr, when I lose my value. Because you look at 2020 to 2021, over 40% of our money supply was printed during that time. That's like I, decades and decades worth of wealth in just a few months. And of course, the, you know, someone's going to have to pay the price for that at some point, which we are, you know, you got $10 eggs at, at the supermarket now. So, you know, there's a lot of people that are saying, hey, my purchasing power is going down. My ability to make change in my own life is going down. So how can I fix that? Um, how can I actually make sure I own that? And that's where, again, like Bitcoin comes in, especially if you look at the stock market. It's a totally controlled game. You know, no, no one gets to win except for the except for the big boys there. So, yeah, it's you're absolutely right. Well, young lady, I'll tell you what, I don't want to keep you too long. Plus, I have uh, right now I'm up in St. Louis at my office, but I got to head out and go back down to Florida. Oh, the struggle's real. <laughs> I'm jealous. Oh. I want to go check out your new place, Ben. We got to talk after this. We got to talk after this. Oh, hon, you let me know when you want to come down to Florida, you and the old man, you crash at our house. We got a pool. We got a hot tub. We'd hang out, hit, hit the club. You, <laughs> you'll love it. You'll love it. It's such a great awesome. energy there. All right. Uh, everyone out in the chat, uh, please give Randy a thumbs up. And uh, where can they find you? You can find me at on MissTeenCrypto.com. has all of my socials. I'm at MissTeenCrypto everywhere. Instagram, threads. Uh, you got Twitter, Rumble, Kick, uh, YouTube, um, Twitter. I'm always there. And at Randy Hipper on Facebook. I'm always live on Monday through Thursday, 9.30 a.m. Eastern for the Daily Zest. And I also have the Miss Teen Crypto show where I interview some awesome people. Ben was one of my first shows. And then I also had Michael Saylor on recently, if you guys want to go check that one that out. Um, awesome. And I also have Educate. Thank you. I also have educational content. If you guys have a teenager in your life or any newbie in your life, send them over to my channel. I have one to two minute intro to crypto videos. They're posting on TikTok, Instagram, YouTube, Twitter, everywhere. So everywhere you can find me, you can find these videos. And all we're out here to do on this channel is to spread adoption, help the next generation and beyond come into crypto and educate them about self-custody, freedom, and positivity. And thank you, Ben, for supporting me literally since day one. I will never forget you. I talk about you on my show often too. So I appreciate you so much. And Hugs to you and Kelly and the family. Hey, the moment I met you and your energy and you were like, I want to learn more. I'm like, 
this gal's going to be a superstar. And you, you've only yet begun, young lady. You will keep on kicking ass. I will you tell your dad I said hi. And uh, have a great day. Everyone else, I will see you tomorrow morning, usual time. Randy, have a great day. You too. Much love, guys. Peace. Bye-bye.